heard D Manufacturer from Fear Factory. This is the Requiem Metal Podcast. I'm Mark. And I am Jason. And yeah, here we are. Uh, A place I don't know if I ever thought I could get us to. (laughs) Um, Which is the record we're going to be looking at tonight from kind of a, I guess I'd say not a controversial band, but maybe controversial in terms of like people, you know, and Mark and I's, um, I guess, camps of metal. Because Fear Factory's probably done more bad than they have done good. Uh, they they started strong, and then like many divisive, bands yeah. in the '90s, they kind of strayed into a, a new metalish, uh, digimortal. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know they, they have strong start, and then uh, kind of lost the path. They've they've since kind of gotten back to a, I guess, a little bit of a better place. But we're going to be focusing on kind of a recent Hall of Fame entry, which I was pretty excited to see that Nick Green put that into the Hall of Fame. Because I've always been a big uh, staunch defender of this record. 
Uh, whereas Mark and Chris, um, who are a little bit older than me, have not seen it, I guess, as kindly or, or as maybe as influential as uh, maybe somebody like myself and um, my buddy Grant Corcoon, who's done a couple of podcasts with us, mm-hmm. who's a little bit younger. So I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not uh, influential. Okay, <laughs> I'm just saying that I don't like it. Okay, all right. <laughs> so uh, I go ahead and I, I guess I'll hear your. Uh, let's okay. let's get your point of view well, on some of this, and I'll kind of jump. My in. history with uh, with Fear Factory goes back to um, Soul of New Machine when we first heard that. Yep, and it was like, okay, that's something kind of you know something interesting because at the time, God, what year was that? Was that ninety? Ninety two, I think. Soul of New Machine. Yeah, because like uh, Pitch Shifter, Godflesh, handful of other bands like that, they were doing the, the heavy industrial death metal kind of thing which I, I you know i still like some of that but i think it's a really limited which you know fear factory kind of, i guess kind of saw that early on and kind of branched out a little bit sure. but um i don't know if it's if you can make a career out of it like ministry did some really good records but then they did more bad records than they did good records sure it just seems like um i think heroin had a lot to do with some of that too though, yeah, unfortunately. lots of jack daniels but also had made some really good music that's true. along yeah. along the way but uh the whole industrial thing I, as much as they, I think it was like something new to add to death metal, almost kind of, I think, pushed them in a corner with really what they could do with it. Yeah, it was tough. Because, I mean, they, like, uh, with the riffing and stuff on here, you definitely hear, like, some, like, what, like, Meshuggah would pick up on later yeah, on. Yeah, I was going to say, I think a lot of bands took their cue from, from some of this. And a lot of that just, it doesn't, it doesn't register with me as, um, it just, I just don't, it doesn't. Well, you and I excited. have never really been that big on a band like Meshuggah, where it's like some people like kind of lose their, their shit over Meshuggah, which is, yeah. I get, musically, I think they're really talented. I think they're interesting. They I just don't care. For, I don't, I don't, Jeff Wagner said it the best. I don't know how to like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's good. I use that quote a lot. So props to you, Jeff, if you're listening. You, you've taught me well in that, that department. And I could definitely see that because I think this is, uh, this is very much a record of its time um, in the development of coming up through the metal ranks like I did. I remember buying this record at that record store in Mount Pleasant that was not Warehouse Records or New Moon, but it was downtown by the ward, and it was exclusively metal-oriented. Oh, that lasted for five minutes. Uh, yeah, it was not there very long. It's actually where I bought Carcass Heartwork and where i bought they had some the good stuff slaughter there. the soul yeah. and i bought this record there it was like you you could almost call it, it was like a roadrunner kind of like it was very much a 1995 1994 roadrunner type place like yeah. roadrunner records well, and the, also all the like the era columbia stuff was 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 getting huge, huge at there. that time yeah lots of t-shirts tons of cathedral the most cathedral shirts i've ever seen yeah. in my life there i bought a cathedral shirt there actually which is cool <laughs> yeah i don't remember what that place was called but that remember. was that was an interesting time for sure yeah it was like a weird little moment where metal had this like bubble where it was almost going to be big but then the columbia thing kind of failed you know and the, yeah the bubble burst on like a lot of this roadrunner stuff that like burned my eyes machine head and the Sphere Factory record. Is that one of Burn My Eyes, is that 95? 94, I want to say. Okay. 94, 95. Yeah, but same era. You know, I mean, I could kind of, you know. And in a way, I almost feel like D-Manufacture is like the most Roadrunner-esque of the Roadrunner records of that era. It's like the personification alongside that Burn My Eyes Machine Head record yeah. of everything that was that label kind of represented in the early to mid-90s once they sort of were done with like the obituaries and then some of the like mm-hmm. early death metal that they had a part in kind of like, guts and- yeah and so once they had moved past that and gotten into this next phase i feel like this is really representative of that but in a positive way they obviously had some more negative stuff that kind of came out of this but um, well and from a business standpoint 
like death everybody thought death metal was dead it was just like this little thing that ran for yeah five six years or whatever and then we need to find the next extreme the next trend or whatever it was going to be and you know they picked up on things like you know this and bloody kisses i think both came out like around the same time as well like 94 95 so red runner had like a niche in like trying to find what that next thing was typo negative didn't prove to be it fear factory didn't really prove to be it neither the machine had they they all three sort of like ran into their own little um I guess shortcomings, or if you will, you yeah. know, like you said, you can't make a career out of making this record. This is sort of a one-time deal uh, so to make like, something yeah. like this. And in a way, like I, I take it as, I guess, a singular kind of vision of what it is, which is this sort of uh, concept album that's dystopian, that's about some kind of Terminator-like hunter-killer thing that comes from the future, and it's it's kind of like I don't know, it's like a Queensrÿche mind crime thing where yeah. like. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, but you get that there's like this sort of like pastiche, like stitched together kind of mm-hmm. thing there. And it gives it sort of an aura where the whole record kind of feels the same, but not in like a bad way, like where it's boring, I guess, from my standpoint. It's this idea that like you can just tell like when a song comes from demanufacturer, I guess, you know, um, it has that sort of like link between it, kind of like Slaughter of the Soul, you know, which we've yeah. talked about before. Every song kind of feels the same on that record and fits together and mm-hmm. that's kind of how demanufacture kind of works maybe um there's just that the weird thing of sci-fi lyrics yeah. there's not a ton of bands that, that do it um like horror seems to work it's a more natural fit sure. for extreme music but then like nocturnus the key for instance mm-hmm. it's, it's a pretty good record but if you listen to it the lyrics and they have a fairly serious tone it's kind of stupid. Yeah. I mean, it comes across as kind of foolish unless you're really in that mindset. I could see that. Yeah. Um, that's what, like, the... That's one thing I liked about Death Metal is I didn't... If the lyrics were bad, I didn't know. Didn't know. Yeah. But when you're singing, like, actually singing... Sure. And the lyrics are kind of borderline, like, kind of goofy. And I would say that these guys... Because I was looking for that, too, because I was like, man, I do I remember sitting down, like, looking at the, the lyrics and things? And, you know... They're they're not terrible. They're they're not the greatest. They're not you know Opeth or Bride or you know something kind of poetic. But they're definitely not um, as juvenile as like I maybe thought they might be. Yeah, these guys seem to be kind of like fans of like you know Blade Runner. Like they they kind of know their sci-fi enough that they fit some of the dystopian things in there. Mm-hmm. So that even though you're not necessarily singing along to the songs because they're not necessarily sing-along songs that yeah. you can pick up on some of like the phrases that they kind of say. And it kind of like it endears you a little bit more to the record. I know what you mean about Nocturnus. There's something about Nocturnus that just doesn't work completely. And maybe we could do a show about that sometimes because I, I have no idea how to even approach a band like Nocturnus. You know? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. They're like such a like a conundrum to me. You know, like they they exist. It they're like linked to Morbid Angel, but yet at the same time, I don't know. But um. You know, a lot, a lot of kind of interesting things going on for this. You know, Colin Richardson uh, did the production, and one of the reasons um, that they sought him out is they were huge Carcass fans, so they kind of wanted to get some of that that same kind of production that, that Carcass had. Uh, Dave McKean, who is a famous comic artist, uh, he did um, Sandman covers, and he also did some of the early Paradise Lost covers. Uh, what else has McKean done? He did, like, Batman Arkham Asylum. Um, trying to think of other uh, other things that anybody would kind of know. Did he do the Sandman stuff? Yeah, he did some Sandman covers and things. He didn't do the il- inside illustration. He just did a he lot just of did the covers. covers. Yeah, he did Shades of God for Paradise yep. Lost. Did he do As a Flower Withers for? Yeah, I think he did some Bride stuff. 
So they sought him out, and um, they got like kind of this interesting, like cover, which I guess represents the the kind of dystopian sort of thing where it's like it's like a cyborg's rib cage, and you know there's an uh, there's an organic side and inorganic side that has the um, barcode kind of stamped into it and stuff, which is like representing this kind of dichotomy of. Did you ever look to see if that barcode is like, the same as the barcode? I think it is. Back. It's the barcode on the CD, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's the CD barcode. So, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so you could like scan it in and you know do that whole thing. But you know, so that's what they're kind of operating out of. And one of the things that he does, like Burton C. Bell, the vocalist on this, um, kind of introduces. I think. I don't know, unless, Mark, you can kind of prove me wrong. I think he's one of the first to fully commit to the kind of, uh, you know, kind of clean screamo, clean death metal sort of back and forth in this sort of capacity. Yeah, I mean, before that, the only thing I can think that's even close is, like, you know, Celtic Frost. We're mm-hmm. doing, like, the gothy stuff with the more shouty stuff in the same that's true. song, but it's not the same type of... This seems pretty like seamless, kind of back and forth, almost like sometimes verse, chorus, verse, chorus in some of that way, which has become so cliche nowadays. But I guess at the time, I don't really remember as a fan of metal hearing much like it was. This. I mean, that was even when Soul of a New Machine came out, that was the thing. Like, oh, this guy can actually sing. Like that was kind of a yeah a thing. So yeah, I can't, especially in the extreme metal underground i can't think of anything i mean i guess you you had like bride or paradise lost sometimes but even like when paradise lost was doing it was more like female vocals mixed with like death vocals it was like beauty and the beast thing you know yeah which was very only on a couple songs it wasn't like an entire album sure you know bride i guess did it but it was it was there's still something different to it because there was so like aaron from the vocalist my dying bride could only be in that band yes he can't be in anything the romantic overtones of it yeah and he doesn't have a a traditionally good voice he has a unique character to his voice but he's not like a great singer he just sounds tragic when he sings now do you think that you and chris probably didn't catch up on this record do you think it's because of the era in which it was because by 95 you guys had very clearly probably left roadrunner you know you what roadrunner was doing was not really on your guys's radar screen for i mean from what i can remember i thought i think chris might have liked it more than me i don't remember okay because i don't um, remember ever this is something like i discovered on my own before i ever met okay you guys, i remember you know? it being it being around it had got a lot of you know definitely had a lot of like saw it in ads and magazines and kind of talked about but more talked about in magazines not by people sure. i didn't know a lot of people that cared about it until later on and i think it would be my like the younger generation, like we all grabbed this record pretty good, kind of like Machine Head burned my eyes. That was it's like an accessible album. record. I mean, it's yeah. a, if you're like getting into extreme music, that was that's kind of the way to go. If if you like, I kind of like death metal vocals, but I'm not sure. Sure, I mean, it's like it's it's kind of a it's a gateway thing for sure. And what I was saying, like to to me, and this is sort of an interesting, I guess, thesis, if you will, is I kind of see this as the more natural sequel to like what. KSAD was like hinting at mm-hmm. uh, than say Roots. Roots was very much a conscious effort by Sepultura to move in a completely d- different direction with the whole Ross Robinson experiment and things like that. Yeah. To me, this sounds this and like say Burn My Eyes was like what KSAD opened the doors for in a way. You know, Machine Head and Fear Factory and like like to me it was like linked to that in a way because mm-hmm. some of his gruff vocals were understandable in the way that you could understand kind of what Max was saying sometimes. Yeah. You know, even with the really terrible Brazilian accent, like yeah, you know, starting to fart, you know, things like starting that. to quake, <laughs> yeah, whatever it was. Um, but but 
Yeah, I hear a lot of that kind of KSED type Sepultura. There's also like an element production wise and through the way in which they like kind of seamlessly put some of the synths and different things in there that it has like a Bloody Kisses, October Rust kind of feel to it too. There, and I don't want to say because it's like a vampiric, like gothic kind of thing, but there's this sort it's of like, kind of washes over this it. kind of like tone, especially when we get to the very last track, which I'll talk a little bit more. Uh, Therapy of pain uh, or for pain, which kind of closes things down. And then there's also um, this element of obviously the industrial side, you know, the mm-hmm. Godflesh kind of like thing going on, but not so much street cleaner Godflesh, which is really your era. It's yeah. more like the selfless kind of era of Godflesh, you know, which was when they signed in Columbia and the, the little. I mean, it's more refined. I like the stuff that didn't. Sound, there's more barbaric, I Absolutely. guess. Absolutely. Um, because I haven't really the only like electronic stuff I've ever really been drawn to. You know, I like uh, Sisters of Mercy, mm-hmm. Fields of Nephilim, Old Ministry. Yep. Um, but that was all depressing. Sure. Taking something that sounds like that and making it sing about like talk about sci-fi that was that might be the big disconnect yeah and that could be you know for me and i don't know if i i think i mean i was initially drawn i'm not gonna lie not to like the sci-fi it was just the sound i mean the riffs were very much out of the you know this is 95 i was a sophomore in high school i mean i was still listening a lot of pantera and white catchy modern yeah yeah. you know stuff like that i was starting to gateway into other things you know i was kind of i think at this point i discovered earache and was starting Mm -hmm. to like you know get morbid angel and some of the the early earache stuff too but um yeah so i think you know i think there's that's where maybe some of that disconnect is from but i guess i would you know urge anybody if you're in the sort of more of the mark camp you know when you kind of take a, a listen to this what i love about it musically is Dino Cesaris has very much a singular vision of like his riffing patterns. It's yeah. you just you know it's a Fear Factory riff from the it's very a palm muted power chord. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and, and that that's either something you like or don't like. It's it's almost like Rob Zombie guitar. Like you just kind of know like White Zombie guitar because it just has that sonic kind of quality to it. But I think we're like the the heroes of this this record uh, are Raymond Herrera, which is the yeah. drummer. Um, I, I really like the things he's doing. He's trying to make an inorganic sound organic um and that's kind of the sci-fi thing i mean if you can go to the cover organic inorganic and so he's trying to do this very much computerized almost like um electronic drum type sound programmed yeah but it, yet none of it's programmed and so if you ever did think that this was, this was programmed well i guess they they you know serve the purpose like cgi that fools people into believing it's because well, like, we saw these guys with um God, i think it was sepultura and um clutch okay that would make sense in that era or something yeah. like 90 it was that before this came out okay it's like but seeing yeah seeing seeing uh raymond herrera play drums is pretty interesting as a weird part partially electronic kit but physically really? played huh. for some of the toms and stuff okay um but then his kicks were just kick drums gotcha liked. and that's basically all you could hear you couldn't <laughs> yeah. hear anything else yeah and I've never seen them live. They actually played close to here about a month ago, and I missed them. Okay. Um, they are playing at that Novi uh, Dirt Fest or whatever that Oh, thing were is. they there? Yeah, they were there until it was down. So okay. a buddy of mine um, who coaches cross country with me, his band played the same day as Fear Factory. But Okay. I was... Yeah, for him, he was in Child Bite. Oh, okay. Um, pl- played up there, too. He's like, oh, the, the pay whatever guarantee is. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I would have went, went just to see Down or Fear Factory, you know, but, you know. Just the idea of standing in a parking lot in Birch Run for. Yeah, it doesn't sound too, yeah. too appealing. If I would have known, like, what time a certain band was playing. And Cold Chamber was there. Oh, how did we miss that? Yeah. Damn. 
we forgot to bring up Cold Chamber on our comeback uh, episode oh. the last time. So, but um, so that's a couple couple things to kind of think about is really pay attention to the drums, I guess. And then again, there's this uh, quality that all the songs kind of fit together in, in a really cool, seamless sort of way. Um, we're gonna kind of just follow uh, our way through the record if you're familiar with it we're going to get into self-bias resistor and zero signal next and one of the things that's really cool about zero signal and you kind of heard it on the opening track there demanufacture is the blending of kind of electronics and some of the keyboard stuff they got some of the guys that were part of like uh front row uh, frontline assembly mm-hmm. kind of helped them like do some of that. I, I believe to arrange it or something. Yeah, some of the to get some of the keyboard kind of sounds and things. I remember reading in the the Decibel Hall of Fame. I couldn't quite get where they contributed, where they didn't, and mm-hmm. I knew they were like a part of the remix record that came out yeah. after Solo of a New Machine yeah. and stuff. But um, was a remanufacturer. Yes, that came out after this. But there was one that came out with remixes of Soul of a New Machine before this, too, and that's where they met the Frontline Assembly guys, and I can't remember okay. off of the top of my head which one that was called. I could look it what up. Was that, what was that? Concrete or something? The demo? Concrete was all their old demos. Yeah, okay. that was like uh, their pre-Soul kind of demos, okay. and that's pretty good, too. But, um, yeah, so you'll hear it very well in Zero Signal. Um, this is a record, it's funny, I, I don't know if I told you this before, Mark, but like I used to ski to this record a lot, so that's what I like remember. Because I have a, it's like a bizarre thing. Exactly, to I have a ski helmet that has like a, an iPod plug, and so you can just kind of put that on. It just pipes it into your ski helmet okay. as you're skiing. And just like every time I hear this record, I just picture myself like going down like slopes and like shit. It's so weird. So it's a really. It seems like you'd really want to. You want. I'd want like Immortal or something, or something like that. Yeah. You know, like I think I have listened to Immortal while I'm skiing, just like you know, mighty Pure Holocaust and shit like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, so we're gonna hear. Self-biased resistor, zero signal, and then we'll come out with replica and new breed. Yeah. 
That was New Breed, Replica, Zero Signal, and then we got things started off with Self Bias Resistor. And um, a couple of things about those last two tunes that we heard, and, and Mark, Mark's just sort of been listening to this as we're kind of going along, uh, which is probably different than what you know, we're, yeah. we're used to doing. So, you know, feel free to jump in a little bit. But um, the cool part, I was, I was talking about the keyboards and Zero Signal, the, the this kind of like Terminator keyboard kind of breakdown kind of part in it. But Replica has some really neat stuff going on drum-wise where there's uh, a lot of parts that work on this record are because of some of the repetition. And when you have something, and maybe you have like a musical term for it, but when you have like something that's very much the same and then all of a sudden you, you unravel that sameness, it stands out a lot more than say something that's a lot more like proggy where it's, whoops, where it's constantly, we just had a little microphone drop. Sorry, mm-hmm. got a little overexcited. We all good? Yeah. All right. Whoa. And uh, you want to start over? No, I'm just keep going. Okay. Um, there we go. Technical difficulties. Here we are. We're back. Um, but no, one of the things, you know, like when you listen to a band that's a lot more progressive is you have, you know, more, you're kind of preparing more for kind of constant change. And so one of the things that like he does on Replica and you hear it like a little bit um, like in Flashpoint, uh, which we'll, we'll get to in this next set is he's doing like a lot of the same like drum patterns and then all of a sudden he'll just sort of like go like buck wild like sort of like crazy over the top almost like a Macedon type part and then he just like pulls it all of a sudden back to that same like riff that he was doing it reminds me a lot of like Ministry Thieves okay it's that consistent through the whole thing until it just you know kind of it's almost like it hits the end of the measure and then it like resets itself and then goes back again or something I mean I guess is that you know is that you're a guy in, in you know, we've always talked about the philosophy of like you, me and Chris and how like you and Chris are sometimes kind of like at different extremes in terms of Chris's Chris really has a, a liking for like a lot of complex, like variety, like a lot of progressive kind of stuff and you're well produced things. Yeah. And yeah. you, you kind of appreciate the idea of sort of like the simplicity riff and things like that. Mm-hmm. So like, you know what they're doing where it's like, they're almost trying to do like this inorganic, almost like program drum sound. Yeah. D- does that like appeal to you in any kind of way in that? Like they're doing that as a repetition and then they break away from the repetition. Does that like work or, you know, because that seems like that's more like in line with like a philosophy that you would have with like music, where like sure. just kind of like a, jam on that same riff, and then all of a sudden do like a little pinch harmonic just out of nowhere. That's like as a oh. concept, yeah, but not always as songs with these guys, just because it's you know sure it's a taste. It comes down to a taste thing, yeah, but, the, yeah. an aesthetic kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, which I get. You but know. I mean, Neurosis does a similar kind of thing to where they they play on a riff and they don't give you the hook, and then there's a release moment almost sometimes. Yeah, sometimes like. Uh, um, I just saw them recently, and they were like kind of doing all the hits. And when you hear like you know Locust Star, which is like their only single, I guess they ever did. There is definitely a release moment in that yeah. song that's that's pronounced. But there's a lot of stuff later on where it just kind of builds and builds and builds and doesn't mm-hmm. pay off. It's just like uh, they leave you hanging a lot. Sure, which yeah. you know I'm sure is all it's all intentional. Mm-hmm. Well, now we get to the sort of the part of the record where. They, as you sort of said, you said they started to get a little bit more metallic at this point, right? It, yeah, I mean, the riffs sound, almost sound like like uh, later on Napalm. Yeah, some thrashy stuff, kind of like stuff. The, forget, what was the one that sounded like just like an Exodus riff? Oh, Body right Hammer? Yeah. yeah, yeah, Body Hammer just kind of starts right off with a kind of a riffing type thing. But one of the cool parts um, is that they open up with is they do Dog Day Sunrise, which 
I didn't know when I first bought this record because I wasn't smart enough to really like investigate the the booklet that much that it was a cover. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a head of David cover, which is Justin Broderick's band after Napalm, correct? Pre God. Well, he was he was he starting. Oh, he was in it. He was drumming yeah, for them. He was asked to drum yeah. for them. Okay, after he quit Napalm, before he started Godflesh? Yep. Is that the timetable? Yeah. All right. And you can kind of tell right away that it just it sounds different, but at the time I just thought, oh, they're just doing this weird song in the middle <laughs> of this record, you know? Kind of like for years, I didn't know on South of Heaven that Distant Aggressor was a Judas Priest cover. Either I just, I. just thought it was it a strange so Slayer like a song. Cover, you know? Yeah, or it yeah. sounds so much like a Slayer song. Yeah, yeah. So Dog Day Sunrise, kind of, you know, again, it starts off, it has that sort of God-fleshy kind of feel to it that you would expect from anything that's associated with Justin Broderick, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you get into Body Hammer, which again is this song that's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a cheesy lyrical song. You know, I was sort of like joking about uh, that and Hunter Killer both have like lyrics like, I'm your judge and your jury, you don't get in it. Like, th- there is. They're rhyming attorney with. Yes. <laughs> Uh, ex, what was it? With jury? Jury, yes. Yeah, it, it's a stretch at times. It's a stretch at times for get sure. Get the source dictionary, I guess. I think one on. of the problems you get, and maybe, you know, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but when you are trying to do a concept record, do you think that concept albums inherently destroy some of the lyrical composition of a record because you're trying to fit, you know, round pegs in, in kind of a square hole? Unless you're like, like Neil Peart. Or like Rush does it really well. Yeah, like they have really good lyrics, no matter if you like their music or not. Um, but it seems like it would be more confining. I would think it'd be much more challenging to try to take that concept through, unless you unless you had it really figured out beforehand. But most concept records, when I hear that, I'm just like, yeah. I roll, and it's usually not. Uh, it's not that interesting of a thing to spend an entire record on. Sure, <laughs> to me. But and I think the the thing that maybe works. And you can weigh in on this. Is it's it's a it's a concept record in that it has a singular vision. I think of what they're trying to do, but I don't feel like you have to really know what the hell's going on to like listen to the record or to like give a shit about the record because no. partially it's a death metal vocal record, so you're not going to sure. really understand the lyrics completely. But you know, like whereas Queensrÿche Operation Mindcrime, like the first few times, like you listen to it and it's a great record. You know, no one would deny that, but you feel sort of pigeonholed or like you have to like figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. You know, when you get to certain songs like sweet sister Mary or whatever, you're like, okay, what the fuck is the story? Like yeah. there's rain. They're like fighting with a nun. I, I don't quite under, you know, the stories are long and complex <laughs> and often not, well not or, or not really worth the effort that it takes yeah. to understand what the plot which, is. Or which I see with a lot of, um, theater. Yeah. Like a lot of plays are just, uh, especially older. Like I don't, I don't really know much about contemporary theater at all. But like seeing stuff in the seventies and eighties, like as a little kid and into the eighties, everything was just really drawn out, like way too much, like stupid. That, that's always been an issue of mine with musicals: is that why do you need to sing this part? <laughs> Does it? It doesn't necessarily make sense. Sure. sure. <laughs> like this is a really, really stupid lyric and not a huge moment in the movie to where it merits this kind of attention. Sure. To it, it's like a know? disconnect. Yeah, it's just weird to me. Like, it works for me when you can throw, like, a Bubsy Berksy, like, uh, dance routine in, like they do in Lebowski with the porno dream sequence, or the KKK and, like, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh, yeah. Where you yeah. have, like, s- synchronized dancing kind of alongside of it. But, that, but if it's just, that like... That works in the concept of the thing, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But if you just have people that just bust in a song for the shits and giggles. And if the whole movie is, is that way, like, where's the impactful moments? Yeah. Because most of the time, those people can't even sing very well. I agree. <laughs> 
I've had some. Uh, I've had some. I'm definitely uh, not a huge fan of musicals. Uh, I mean, there's there's some good ones for sure. One that not to go off track too much. Yeah, but I like it. <laughs> the, uh, have you seen Jersey Boys? Uh, I haven't yet about Frankie Valli. The but I, I know Eastwood movie. Clint Eastwood movie. I like Frankie Valli as a singer. Sure. He's, I think he's interesting. I liked him as a kid. Um, this guy that's playing him sounds fucking terrible. Yeah, I didn't seem interested. He was play- well. He's the one that played him on Broadway. So I was like, okay, okay I can give it a little bit more because a lot of Broadway singers aren't. There's a different. There's Broadway singing, and then there's singing for you know recording or whatever. Sure. And the guy does not hit. He doesn't have any of the character in his voice like Frankie Valli had at all. Yeah. And it just completely took me out of the picture. I don't even know why. I, what this has to do with Fear Factory. Hey, we're, well, we're talking about <laughs> conceptual singing or conceptual yeah. lyrical kind yeah. of stuff. You know, but like when you get to songs like Body Hammer, HK, Hunter Killer, the music in them outweighs anything else. And I think that's like yeah. the thing. Like if you're listening to a record like this, there are some cool like technology type vibes and industrial sort of moments with the keyboards and samples and things like that, that give it a futuristic kind of sound. I guess that's the only way of like sort of putting it. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily something that's like essential to like understanding or enjoying the, the sound of the record, you know? Um, like I said, you know, the, the stuff that they do, like drumming wise, is really where like this is like key. And when you get to like a song that we're going to end the set with, which is Piss Christ, Piss Christ very much has like a um, kind of like a nail bomb, like clinched fist, sepultura sort of feel. Like there's yeah. definitely Max Cavalera, like blood kind of like all over this and in fact you pointed out i think it might have even been in flashpoint there was like some cool um bass breakdowns or whatever and it sounded straight off of like nail bomb point blank yeah. which is funny because and it's like, out of pl- on the record it's got almost out of place yeah it doesn't you don't the bass doesn't come to the surface that much yeah exactly and so and i guess that's interesting you know it stands out it's like i said when we we're talking about you know doing things that are repetitious and then doing something you know a little bit different to like kind of make it sort of jump out a little bit at you, you yeah know? so um but yeah, so this is uh, this is we're gonna get into Dog Day Sunrise, uh, the Head of David cover. Then we got Body Hammer on the way, Flashpoint, HK, Hunter Killer, uh, which Hunter Killer and Body Hammer were my two favorite songs when I was a kid. And now I look at them and they're they're probably two of the more I guess lyrically juvenile songs. But eh, yeah, Body Hammer, it sounds like it was like a crappy version, like a knockoff of Body Glove, yeah. clothing or something. <laughs> and then we're gonna end Except with uh, movie, <laughs> end with uh, Piss Christ, and find out uh, where where your savior is now so enjoy
That was Piss Christ, HK, Flashpoint, Body Hammer, and Dog Day Sunrise. That was my my Burton C. Bell does Head of David impression there. Pretty pretty good stuff. Um, so as we sort of draw things to a close with this record, one of the reasons why we wanted to do it was because, you know, we were in different places in terms of, you know, where we approach this record. Um, you know, this is probably the first time you've sat down since what, the mid-90s, maybe, that you've actually heard a majority of this record in one sitting? Probably, yeah. Is that fair? Fair. So, now, I guess, where where do you kind of stand on, on this front after kind of, like, listening to it a little more than you probably have in 20 years or so? I mean, I can understand the influence, but I still don't like it. <laughs> and, that's, and that's fair, and that's why we do that stuff. Um, yeah, and, you know, it, it is... It's one of those unfortunate things that some of the bands that it spawned Outside of Mashuga, because Mashuga's not you know bad and they're pretty harmless. Um, no, they're I mean they're interesting for basically a death. But they've never gone outside of death metal. Yeah, they've always had screaming vocals and stuff. Like there's nothing really safe about it. Sure, it's cool that they've made a career doing. It. I just I just don't like it. Yeah, Mashuga's I, I liked their like mid '90s kind of stuff was okay. Yeah, but then like it pretty much just sounded like they were doing the same record over and over again, kind of. But. Yeah, and if it, you know, it's cool that they can play off time or play weird but it just i don't i'm not drawn to it sure it's got to have some kind of something that i yep. grab onto no and i i definitely feel that but i think that sometimes uh you know a band like fear factory with this record gets maligned because of the things that sort of came off of it I, you know i was i think talking off mike earlier about like helmet or anthrax public enemy you know accidentally maybe creating the roots of like rap metal and, and some of the the new metal sort of signature sounds and stuff or even the deftone show that we did that they get kind of like drawn into that some of that stuff too yeah so um it's unfortunate and i think fear factory didn't do themselves any favors because a couple records later they started to do that type of stuff uh with digimortal and, and some of the records that i just kind of ignored them during that era i just kind of assumed they were uh, kind of a lost cause um obsolete the record after this isn't bad yeah and then they're pretty much done in the water until the record i picked up not too long ago was mechanized uh that was pretty good gene hoglin it's on candlelight records it's kind of a return back to the demanufacturer stuff if you like that kind of sound. Well, even Gene, I mean, as much of a pirate gun as Gene is, usually he doesn't play in total garbage. No, no. So, I mean, there's something that, that gave him a little bit more, you know, street cred or sure. whatever. My, and, you know, the, the GZR record, I mean, that's Yeah, that's we, were, we were talking about some GZR. If you're unfamiliar, if you're a Burton C. Bell fan and you're unfamiliar... <laughs> Uh, it's a Geezer Butler solo record with Burton C. Bell, and which you could go to any CD cutout bin in the early two thousands and, and probably find, find it for, for a dollar. <laughs> yeah, I had it at one point in my life. Uh, I didn't didn't have it for Columbia long. Columbia House or probably is where I got it, BMG okay. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, but uh, a couple like if you like Dino uh, Cesaris type riffing, then it's it's fine. It's pretty harmless, but it's not a great record, but. I guess I would put this, uh, you know, demanufacturing that same kind of ballpark as like a nail bomb point blank, you know, a mm -hmm. record for its era that was, you know, pretty interesting. No one had really heard anything that had the kind of 
technology kind of aspects kind of going on for it and some of the weird kind of keyboard kind of things, you know, outside of maybe Nine Inch Nails or Ministry or, or some of those other bands. Uh, but even they used kind of like sampling like a little bit more different than I think yeah. Fear Factory did at this point. So uh, we're going to close things out, though, with a, a track called Therapy for Pain. And it's a longer song. We'll actually kind of fade it out around the six-minute mark, even though I think it's closer to ten minutes. Um, I think the roots and origins of this actually come from the pre-Soul of a New Machine era, the obsolete kind of uh, songs. And so it's actually a song that they had kind of been floating around for a while. But this one in particular has a very much a typo negative October Rust kind Production of feel style, to it. Yeah, yeah just very um, um, atmospheric in, in that sort of sense, um, which is cool, you know. And it probably hints at some of the, like the, the different things that they're going to kind of do in the future, especially vocally with Burton C. Bell, you know. Uh, I think the song that they really hit big with was when they did the Gary Newman cover of Cars. And I can't remember if that was for an album or a soundtrack, but that was like kind of a big kind of radio song in the late 90s but yeah that gave him a ton of i just don't remember what album it was on or i didn't really pay that much attention to it because i didn't really care you know so i remember seeing a single at the radio station or something for it i think okay like a cassette single or something or maybe i got a cassette single i don't remember Hmm. whenever that came out um but yeah, let us let us know. Kind of give us some feedbacks. You know, I'm sure there's some people that that find this to be kind of a controversial record. I know you said you were kind of surprised when you saw it show up as a, a Hall of Fame record. You know, and stuff. And uh, Nick Green, I know, is is a big fan of it, and he kind of likes some of the weird kind of left of center stuff. I, I find mm-hmm. some of my tastes with him can kind of be on. So he must have been a fan in the mid '90s, and then probably like most of us, moved quickly away from Fear Factory into other stuff. You know, so. But uh, yeah, you can send us an email at Requiem podcast at gmail.com uh we're probably by the time this hits uh you should be able to find us uh on some websites perhaps uh what was the web- website that they were going to be able to donate on if they go to it we'll be on Bandcamp, but i don't Bandcamp. have the name yeah we're not there yet if you look up if you'll look up uh, record metal podcast on Bandcamp, you'll find yeah, it you'll be easily. able to find it you could kind of do a nice donation which is always really helpful to us uh one of the reasons that we took a couple years off is you know we just had to had to make money and do some other things and, and you know, be one of the motivating factors that kind of keep us doing this a little bit more on a regular basis. And then you Cause could, the, yeah, the behind the scenes things that people don't see are the, the prep and then editing. Yep. Uploading like all that stuff takes like way longer than you might expect. So absolutely. And you know, the gas mileage for us to sort of drive to each other's houses. Hell, we just dropped some money on some, uh, pizza and stuff you know exactly you gotta you gotta write this (laughs) off (laughs) yeah yeah it's a tax write-up but uh we also have a twitter account uh recommend podcasts on twitter you should be able to find that out that's an easy way to give us some kind of direct feedback let us know what shows you're kind of interested in doing let us know where you stand on a album like demanufacture you know like i said uh even though mark kind of checked it out it didn't uh change his opinion which is fine uh you know we we're like that we have kind of uh varied tastes and i'm very very aware of where this stuff falls in like it was a very niche kind of mid 90s roadrunner right before the wheels came off of american metal i mean this is yeah. like right at the cusp of like the corn revolution and all the, the sort of aftermath and waves that limp biscuit and all that stuff we're going to sort of create it was the calm before the storm but you guys were already you guys had already left the storm and the cold. Yeah, we left you know? the state and the storm so, was way behind Yeah, us. so I get it. I get it. So I'm sure there's some other people that are in that realm. But uh, So, Therapy for Pain from Demanufacturer Fear Factory. I'm Jason. And I'm Mark.
No death tonight.